We, uh, we wrapped up that series on money, and uh, if you remember last week, we transitioned into this two-week kind of looking at the vision of new community. We took the phrase, the community of missionaries. Uh, we would define ourselves as a church community, as a community of missionaries. And uh, we have been talking last week and this week about how our mission intersects with the mission of God. We believe that if we're called to follow Him into His ways, that uh, our mission, the vision of this place, should actually align with the teaching and the vision of Jesus. And so last week we looked at the importance of community. We talked about uh, what it means to be a family. We said, in fact, that probably the best descriptor of this unique collection of people that gathers here on a Sunday would be family. Now, Jesus uses that metaphor over and over and over again. And during uh, the talk, I shared one of my friend's little write-ups about what, what it means to be the family of God. And um, what I wanted us to do this morning, just to remind ourselves of last week, is to read that together. So it's going to be on the screen. I'm just going to ask you to read this little paragraph with me. We eat, we drink... We get mixed up in one another's lives. We tell our stories. We find ourselves in God's story. We see God ways to live our values together. We love, we argue, we mess up, we forgive. We live as followers of Jesus in a world that longs for good news. We notice our neighbors. We give ourselves away. We are not content with things as they are. We serve. We share gifts. We participate in what God is up to in the world. We are the family of God. I think that's a, a picture that kind of gets at what it means to be a community. This morning, we want to talk about what it means to be missionaries. There's a famous preacher that uh, was from England, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He uh, preached, at, they say, in his career to over 10 million people. And he was a preacher that, uh, that was known for making pretty strong statements, and this is one of his statements. He said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That's a strong statement, that every Christian is either a missionary or, to rephrase it, a fraud. It's one or the other. No ifs, ands, or buts, no in-between. We're going to try to look at this kind of statement and whether or not it's true this morning. I want to try to back either back up his claim or prove that it isn't true, one of the two. But before we do that, I want to like maybe suggest that the way to understand this could be seen over the last several weeks. So we talked about money for four weeks. And let's just imagine for a moment that uh, after talking about money for those four weeks, I came in to this morning I told you I was really excited about something that happened to me this week. I uh, had a, a great opportunity. I found something I'd been looking for for a really long time. It was on sale. It was awesome. I couldn't believe that it, it was available, and so I bought it. Right? And this is a picture of what I showed you this morning that I bought. Yeah. Yeah. Now, let's assume I did that. What are some of the thoughts that would be maybe running through your head? Yeah, I, I got a raise, yeah. Or how much are they paying this guy, right? Okay, that'd be one thought. What are some others? Good, shout them out. What? 
There's no engine in it. Okay. What else? I inherited some money. Okay. Any other thoughts? That will not make me happy. It may. <laughs> How am I going to feed my family? Okay, good. The Ford Taurus could also get you where you need to go. Okay. What? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Okay, I've got it. I'm going to ask for a plane next or something. Yes, um, some of you might be thinking, like, hey, good for you. Others of you might be going, I would have probably picked that in red. You know? Um, some of you are probably thinking more along these lines. We just did a four-week series on money where we talked about giving money for kingdom, that money drives mission, and then you show us a picture of that. Hmm. It seems like what you're saying isn't how you're living. You might even think me to be an imposter. Let's just suppose that this last week when we talked about family, the importance of family, the significance of being in community, the the, the reason we want to be together with one another. Let's assume that when we talked about that, that I then expressed that the most important people the most important leaders in our church, our small group leaders, let's suppose they didn't actually believe a word of what we said. Or let's imagine that the staff, whose job and responsibility it is to help equip and support small group leaders, actually never themselves went to small group. Or imagine the elders who are supposed to support the staff and the small group leaders, and the community at large. Imagine if none of them were committed to gathering or investing in each other's lives on a weekly basis. You would probably think us imposters. You would probably say it seems quite inconsistent with what we teach. It seems like there's a bit of a disconnect. I think that's why Spurgeon says every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. And here's how I think he gets to it. Here's how I think he can say that phrase. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. There's this small little interesting passage there that we're going to look at this morning that I think kind of speaks to this idea of what it means to be a missionary and what perhaps Christ is calling us into. In Mark chapter 3, And it'll be on the screen as well as in the text, but I encourage you, turn there. There's something about holding it in your hands and looking at it. It says this in uh, verse 13, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the, I don't even know how to say it, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay? This is who he appointed. 
He called these people to himself. So Jesus is in the midst, right, of calling followers. He's calling disciples. He's calling those who he wants to be with him. And he says this phrase that we're going to spend all of our time on this morning. It says, He appointed twelve so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. There's three big ideas that he talks about. That they might be with him, that they might preach, and that they might have authority. This is what he's calling us to. The text says early on that he appointed them, that he called them, that he invited them to himself. It's an intimate term. It's this idea of like a face-to-face invitation. It's not the idea of like uh, sending out a flyer or an e-invite, right? It's like, will you, personally you, be my disciple? Will you follow me? Right? That's the invitation that's made. And he invites them into these three things that we're going to look at. The first one is this, that they might be with him. Now when you think of that phrase, be with him, What are some ideas that come to mind? You tell me. What are some things that come to mind? What does that phrase mean to you? Okay, to eat together. Okay, relationship. Job shadowing. Hanging out. Being present. Honoring him. Some of us might think of the idea of intimacy. I think uh, we, ha- we get these images in our mind of what it means. And if we have to be honest, one of the images that sometimes comes to mind is uh, the image of just being with Jesus in this sense. I googled it, I just typed in be with Jesus, and that's what came up. First image. Just like hugging Jesus, being present with Him. Sitting on his lap, there was another hundred Google images, all of people staring right into his face. And him holding little kids. And So some of us, maybe that's the cultural idea that jumps into our mind. For others, perhaps it's the idea of 20 minutes of a devotional. To be with Jesus means to read your Bible, usually best done with coffee, um, sitting quietly, and, and being with him. We get these pictures in our mind. This one um, is probably one of the more interesting pictures to me because uh, for as much as we say, and I've heard many people say, what does it mean to be with Jesus? And they say it means to have quiet time with him or devotions with him or time one-on-one or whatever phrase you want to use, right? We have a lot of Christian lingo for this particular phrase. And it strikes me as odd that we say that that is the primary way that we're with Jesus. And then, surveys come out that say 57% of all Christians read their Bible four times or less. Not per week, not per month, per year. 57% of Christians surveyed in this national poll, outside of like church time, this doesn't count, Outside of like small group time, they personally read their Bible four times or less per year. At least that's how they voted. So maybe it means spending time with them four times annually. 
But maybe it means something quite different. Maybe it means more than that. So what if, what if being with Jesus is more active than passive? What if being with Jesus is more active than passive? What I mean by that is what if Jesus, being with Jesus means being on his mission? What if being with Jesus is an incredibly active thing we engage in? I mean, if you think about it, the best way of acquiring something isn't to be told it, it's to practice it. The best way to have something become such a part of your life that it becomes a natural thing for you to do isn't to sit and imagine what it would be like, but to actually practice it so often that it becomes second nature. It just becomes something you do. It becomes so ingrained into your being. See, it's interesting that when Jesus describes when he's with us in the scriptures it's rarely if ever used where it's just you by yourself and him by himself or your bible or whatever you want to just rarely if ever the most often that he speaks of the idea of being with you i'll give you a couple that might come to mind when two or three are gathered together what I'll be with you. I'll be in your presence, right? That means wherever community and mission are taking place simultaneously, you have church. It doesn't happen on Sundays at 9 and 11. It happens anytime community and mission are happening with a group of people. There is church, the body of Christ. There is the presence of God. Here's another one. You've probably heard this phrase like a thousand times. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and lo, or behold, I am what? With you always. Find another time that he says that he's with you always, and it not being tied to this idea of making disciples, being on mission, in your going, in your discipleship of others, all of those things are active, not passive. In our action, in our movement, God is present with us. It's a way of us being with Him. But what if it's being with Him isn't just being more active than passive? What if it's also a filter through which we see everything? A filter through which we see everything. Meaning, what if... All of your decisions were shaded by the idea that God was present with you. What if every decision you made, what if everything in your life you saw through the lens of discipleship, or through the lens of following Him, or through the lens of Him being in your life? What if every decision you made you sought His opinion? Like every decision. What if you so recognize this presence in your life every day that every interaction you had with another person assumed that he was standing in the conversation with you? Would that change anything? Would that shift the way that you understand what it means to be with him? 
I mean, basically what we're talking about is the idea that Jesus is so intertwined in your life that your very identity is built around the understanding that you are with Jesus on mission. Your very identity. Chester wrote it this way. He said, but build our lives around our identity, around how we see ourselves. If you see yourself first and foremost as a businessman or a housewife or a professional, then you will build your life around this with church or the people of God as part of an orbiting fringe of activities. But if you see yourself first and foremost as a member of God's missional people, then you will build your life around this identity. What he's saying is that you and I are always on mission. Always. Every part of your life. Every activity you do, every event you go to, everything is a part of Jesus' mission to make disciples. So he says to us at the beginning, invites us to be with him. Then the rest of the phrase goes this. He says, and he appointed twelve so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. The second idea is this idea of preaching. Now, if I was to say to you, what is the image that comes to mind when you think of a preacher, um, you might have hundreds of different ideas, right? Some would say that person on the, with a bullhorn on the side of the street. Some of you would say, oh, it's that person who stands up front and holds their Bible up in the air and yells at us or something, right? Uh, all of us have different images or pictures of what it means to preach. To preach is the idea of to proclaim, to declare something. To, to do that to a group of people in, in a way that invokes change, that encourages uh, life consideration. But I would want to suggest that to preach also carries with it the idea of being sent. To preach carries with it the idea of being sent. See, in the book of Romans, there's this interesting phrase where he's starting to talk about what it means to follow Jesus. And he says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he goes on to say, well, how is that possible? How did that happen? He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching, declaring it, proclaiming it? Next, and how will they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What the book of Romans is declaring is you are a sent people. You've been sent by God to others. This quote by Ed Stetzer says this, Mission is rooted in the identity of God Himself. God is on mission, first and foremost, and Jesus is the embodiment of that mission. Jesus identifies himself as being sent more than 40 times in the Gospel of John. Then near the end of the Gospel of John, he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The church is sent on mission by Jesus. It's not that the church that has a mission, but rather that the mission has a church. See, we are a sent people. And I would say for historically for far too long, what we have said to the world around us is that church happens in a building. 
We've said that if you want to meet Jesus, you should come here at 9 or 11. We've said that if we invite someone, then the person that gets up front is going to say things that might lead that person to Jesus. That somehow we abdicate our responsibility to other people because we're not the sent ones. We're the ones that are supposed to invite others in. But let me say it this way. Jesus is not made for staying in churches. Right? He's not made for staying in these walls. And as a default, neither are you. Right? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We're not made to be in these walls. We're not made to have the time that we're on mission or the time that we do something religious happen here. Our calling is to do that in the world. In fact, I firmly believe that what kingdom people do is they don't ask, how do we get more people to come to church? What they ask, kingdom people ask, is how do we get the church to be in the world? How do we like get up and get out and actually make a difference in the world? Because that's where we're called to preach. That's where we're called to proclaim the good news, Right? It's great to proclaim the good news here. It is, because it reminds us of something. But it isn't like new news to us. But there are many, many people that it is brand new news. Good, amazing news. That they have not yet heard, or have heard in a way that does not seem good. It certainly doesn't seem grace-filled. It certainly doesn't seem of Jesus. So you might ask the question, well, what are we called to preach? What are we really called to preach? Jesus kind of answered that in Luke. He said this, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. To preach it, right? He has sent me to preach liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim or preach the year of the Lord's favor. This is the life-changing message of the Gospel that what Jesus is all about isn't just someday your life being different, but your life in the present as well as the future being markedly different. Right? He's about grace. He's about changing your life. He's about making a difference. And this is what we're called to preach. The good news of Jesus. In everything. All the time. It's the very calling of our life. Which leads us to the third word. He says this, And he appointed twelve so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. This third idea is the word authority. And yes, it says to cast out demons. I'm not going to ask you for a picture of what that looks like in your mind. But what the author is getting at, I think, is an idea that, that goes beyond just casting out demons. He's speaking to this idea of, like this big, huge idea of authority. What does it mean for us to be a people of authority? 
What he's saying, I think, is that something very significant has been entrusted to us. And I'll describe it this way. That we have authority from someone to something. Okay? Or for something. Authority from someone for something. Okay? So here's who it's from. It's from the king. We have the authority of the king. If you are a prince and you walked into part of the kingdom of the king, and you walked into the town, and you brought with yourself the seal of the king, the authority of the king, what would that mean? Someone tell me, what does that mean? For someone, a prince, to walk in and have the authority of the king, what does that mean? Okay, you represent him. Good. What else? The prince then has authority. Good. What else? It's as if the king himself was there. Good. What else? You summon. You're accountable. Good. Others. He's sending his message through you. That means you you carry all of the weight of the king. All of the authority all of the power that what you say is as if he said it. That what you declare is as if he declared it. That what you um, put into action now becomes a very law of the kingdom. That all of the money, you like you bring his checkbook with you. Right? You bring everything that the king has, you bring with you. Because he's entrusted the authority to you. He's passed it on. From someone, for something. And I think the authority is for this thing called reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians it says this. For we, if we are beside ourselves, just pause there for a minute. He's saying this. If we are out of our mind, if we are crazy, if we are like all mixed up in the head, that's what Paul's saying, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, if we make sense to you, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls or compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What He's saying there, a long phrase, to basically say that He has given us the responsibility of reconciliation. That He's passed on to us this whole idea, this is a huge idea, of making right relationships in the world. Meaning, To have people made right with God 
He has given or entrusted that responsibility to us. To have husbands be made right with their wives. To have brothers be made right with their sisters. To have relationships restored. To have cities rebuilt. To have all of that as a part of the reconciliation of all things to God. And what he's saying is that responsibility has been entrusted to you and I and with it. He has given us the authority to act. Some of you might go, I I don't even, what does that mean? How do I do that? Let me give you a couple of examples. You have this amazing authority to bless. You realize that? That you have the ability to bless someone with the power of your words. There's this teaching in the Old Testament that Jesus, God, declared with his very voice, in a beginning, he declared with his very voice, and things were created, right? And he says to us that we are co-creators in the same way. Now, I can't say something and it just magically appear, but I can say something that magically affects the life of other people. I can create in them some other way of understanding even themselves. There's power in our ability to bless. He also has given us authority to forgive. That's a crazy concept, but he says that if you forgive it, I will forgive it. If you forgive it, I will forgive it. He's given us the ability to create. Like I said before, he's he's invited us into this idea of being co-creators with God. And there's so much. We don't have time to describe all that that entails. And he's given us the authority to bind and loose. That means this, that that we have the freedom to say that there is freedom in Christ to things that have been binding to people in the past. And then we have freedom in other areas to say that that thing needs to be tied down relationally, right? Like These are some of the ways in which he's entrusted Authority, but that authority comes from Him. It's not of our own doing. It's not because we have the ability to do these things, but it's Him through us. So the text says that He appointed twelve so that they might be with Him and He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And this is why I think Spurgeon can say every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. It is your very identity to be a missionary. Not just someday, not just in some nation, not just in some place where you raise funds. It is your calling now, today, at work, at home, in your neighborhood, in your hobbies, in everything you do. God has given you the authority to be reconcilers, to be missionaries. It's our calling. Let's pray. Father, we sometimes, I mean, I know for myself, I hear something like this and I go, man, I am so incapable of that calling. I'm so incapable of the idea that, uh, that I am supposed to be a part of the reconciliation of all things. Or I'm so incapable of feeling like I'm the kind of person that could actually proclaim good news 
to those who are hurting and lost and broken and in need. I, I feel so inadequate. And in fact, in, in the book of Acts, I know that you say that who is equal to such a task? And the idea, the question that's posed is to cause all of us to basically say none of us are equal to the task. But that's because none of us need to be equal to it. That you have declared that what you desire is for us to be with you, to be active with you, to be close to you in relationship with you. And that in doing so that you have entrusted and empowered and given us authority to be proclaimers of this good news and people who bring reconciliation and healing and forgiveness and change into the lives of people. So God, may we live into our very identity that you've given us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.